Hey, welcome to the Health Coaches Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Howard Jacobson. Before we get to today's episode, a question. Would you like to become a wicked effective health coach to help people change their behaviors, change their habits, change their health destinies, and to be able to do it through a reliable process, one that works every time? If so, I'd invite you to check out the WellStart Health Coach Training Academy. And you can find it at wellstartcoach.com. And you can check and see when we're running our next training course. All right, let's get to today's topic. Lanny Mulrath, welcome to the Health Coaches Podcast. Hi, Howard. Thanks for inviting me. A pleasure. I'm, I'm excited to get your insights. You are one of the people whom I have learned the most from um, going back years and years when I was just beginning to apply what I knew about coaching in general to the health field. Um, we've talked, wow. we've talked wow. a bunch and I've watched your presentations yeah. and, you know, you you've actually your technology and methodology has actually predated a lot of things that have become really popular lately, like atomic habits and tiny habits like you were doing that before they had names. Hmm. Um, so I just wanted to check in with you about, well, first of all, just maybe a brief introduction so folks know who you are and where you come yeah. from. Yeah. From me or from yeah, you? From are you, you doing from you. No, oh, okay. No. Part, part of coaching is you do yeah. as, as little work as possible. So I'm going to make yeah. you do the work. Okay. Okay. Well, it's interesting because I really have kind of a broad spectrum of background that's brought me to this point in time. And I... For example, I've been a fitness trainer and a vegetarian for 45 years, and I've been an author for the last seven or eight. And in the middle, I've been teaching kinesiology in college and um, taught sixth grade for 20 years. So there, there's a lot there that kind of comes into the mix. But my heart right now that brings all this together is my work in mindfulness practices and the difference that this can make in our lives, because it was singularly the biggest, uh, most impactful element of practices for me that allowed many other changes that I would wanted to implement, be able to come to pass. Mm. So there you have it. Okay, so let's when 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 I heard your presentation at uh, I think it was like 2014 or 2015 at the uh, NAVS conference. You really weren't you were doing a lot of best practices around change, but you weren't including mindfulness. So I want to I want to sort of talk about mindfulness in two ways. One is like like teaching mindfulness because it's an awfully hard thing to do. And people have tried to teach me like don't watch don't read a book while you eat or chew mindfully or stuff like that. And I find that very challenging. But also, can you use mindfulness to help with other habits, other, um, you know, so almost almost as mindfulness as, a, as an end, but then also mindfulness as a means to change. So does, does that make sense? Yeah. And that's what I was just uh, touching on is that this is a singularly what has leveraged many other changes for me or things that I found difficult or frustrating for a long time or um, impenetrable or hard to understand. It kind of opened those things, those possibilities for me to be able to move forward. So, and it's interesting that you say when I gave that conversation, that presentation, low those many years ago, 
2014, can you believe that's in our past now? It's like, sometimes I think, wow, how can we call that a long time ago? And it used to be 19 something. <laughs> so, so at that point in time, I was practicing, but I had not, and I was teaching mindfulness to clients individually, but I had not gone through certification training that I felt was important to be able to take it to a bigger stage and and advance that, yes, I can teach you in this practice. I kept it on the small basis rather than on a bigger platform. And then I underwent uh, formal training and that just, whether it was, you know, permission to teach on a bigger stage or just gave me some more facilitating tools, I should say, for mm. bigger and things that it changed that and then of course the mindful vegan book came out and that was a big turning point at being able also you know how it is when you have a book you can say well here read it and then i can help you if you like right so what was the you know you've been coaching you've been coaching successfully for years in your book the plant-based journey you all you have an entire section like you did a ton of research for that book on what gets in people's way. So you're not just making stuff up. You're 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 tailoring your coaching to real life obstacles. So what was the obstacle that mindfulness addressed or what were the range of obstacles that, that you now had a new tool for? Okay. Uh, and I appreciate that you brought up the research because I'm an academic and I always feel like things need to be supported with a long list of papers and peer-reviewed this and that. And sometimes I think to a fault, but I've become a little bit released from that with my the workbook that I'm working on now, um, in, in, which is in a good way. But I do have this background of all the, the research for this platform of change. So for me, what happened is if you think about it, well, here, this will help what we're doing with this too. When people come to me and, and say they want some assistance, I always do an interview at no cost first conversation. And I stress that there are three legs to making this change. And that's the food. And then that's fitness or moving your body or somehow not being a sedentarist and also frame of mind. And I say, if you are really are interested in working with me, then you, we need to agree that you are going to address all three of those. Because for years I'd worked with people who wanted to hone the diet. Uh, let me get underneath the skin of what it's like to eat whole food plant-based because that's probably where a lot of my weight problems or health problems lie. But I knew that there was, some, there was something missing there. If they weren't addressing moving their body and they weren't addressing getting beneath the surface of some of the challenges that were making it difficult for them to follow through on their food plan, then it, that's why I said, look, we got to agree on those three. And oftentimes people would agree and then in their mind they thought, well, I'll just get her on board and then have her confirm what I want to know and, and say it's going to work after all what I'm doing and you know what that's like. So for me, the difference was, let's look at what mindfulness is. And there's two realms that we can talk about that in. But let's start with the practical with behavior change, okay? Now we can look at the other realm if you want. But it's what it is, it's, it's a specific form of mental training 
And it's also a particular kind of awareness you bring to your daily activities in your daily life. So there's the two legs to this one component in mindfulness. Okay. And so if we have a, together, these lead to two things. One is reductions in reactivity. Now, let me just let that sink in for a minute. How much of our day is reacting to something external, a person, place, or thing, something internal, something a circumstance, a mood? We have habituated reactions. So it helps to reduce reactivity because you create a little bit of space around your habituated reactions. And it also helps you cultivate positive brain states. A positive brain state, and we all know what they are because they're endogenous to us, is uh, kindness, love, compassion, patience, happiness, joy. Those are, they're all in there. They've just gotten covered up by our busy minds and our busy lives. So if you're seeking to affect change in any area of your life, and there's a practice that helps you reduce reactivity it helps you create a little bit of space around things in your life so that you can make a more skillful choice. Would that not allow you to do anything? Mm. So me meaning that the reactivity is essentially a choiceless state, right? So, yes. so if I think about like you're sitting on the, uh, the, the doctor's table with your legs crossed and they hit your knee with a hammer, you're reactive, right? Your little patellar, right? Perfect. And you, you don't have choice over that. And the same way that if we have these habituated reactions that have been ingrained, and especially around like, you know, we, we tend to eat to react to unpleasantness or sadness or boredom. Or excitement, or, it's either way. Yeah. Uh -huh. That this gives, that the mindfulness allows us to see that there is a habituated reaction and we get to indulge it or not, rather than after the fact, be moaning and, and shaking our heads. Why did I do that again? Yeah, you make a more skillful choice. So uh, my favorite quote, and I open the mindful vegan with this is from Viktor Frankl. And I know you're familiar with it, Howard, is between stimulus and response, there is a space. And then that space, we all know where that is, right? whether it, whatever it is in our life, we all feel that little before we might go with a reaction. And in that space, you have a choice. And in that choice lies your freedom. So mindfulness practice opens up that space. It doesn't make you uh, non-reactive. It doesn't mean you're not going to react to things, but you're able to see that you ne are not necessarily that reaction that is something, a behavior that you have cultivated and practiced for a long period of time. And with mindfulness practice and being more present, you start to see rather than telling yourself, oh, I shouldn't react like that. It always gets me into trouble. Instead, you start to realize you become more insightful. Like, I see how that has led to. It's like non-punitive. Mm -hmm. It's more like a little burst of enlightenment. Okay. So, so for myself, and you ask for personal, and then we'll go to your next question. For me, I discovered through mindfulness practice that uh, first that I needed to pay attention to my hunger and fullness signals. If you want to look at it really pragmatically, because I was a career dieter 
and wondered why I was prone to overeat. It's because I was under eating much of the time. And it also made me realize if I could be more mindful of that, it evaporated much of what emotional or stress eating would be. And it also made me realize that through much of my life, my reaction to uh, emotional sensitivity, whether it was, like you mentioned, um, something positive or negative, it was rather than be present with it, I would eat instead. Mm -hmm. Sometimes because I was hungry, but sometimes just because that's was my tool. That was huge for me, all of that. Excuse me, my hair is all kind of funny. Um, okay, so so I ask you to put it into practice because I'm uh, I'm working with a client now who gets it, gets everything, and yet comes back and reports that they tend to make poor food choices when they're tired. So it feels like there's there's an opportunity for mindfulness here. How would you guide that person? Would you say, okay, let's just be mindful, like at that moment? It's almost like. <laughs> Like that's like the hardest moment or would you start them off with just mindfulness in another place? And like, you know, like, would you have them practice layups or or like practice the three point shot in the middle of the game? Yeah, layups are always good, aren't they? Mm -hmm. Kind of setting yourself up for success. Well, first, I would investigate what to them means when they're tired and what their preparation is for those moments. So we're all going to have times when the last thing we want to do is chop vegetables and do whatever we're supposed to do to make that kind of thing happen. And we can't always foresee when we're going to need something quick, right? So there's practical side and there's a um, the other affective side. Practical side is are you putting things in place so that when you're tired and you're hungry and you don't want to prepare, you can just easily access some food? Mm-hmm. The other thing is, is to take up even a short mindful, mindfulness practice of a few minutes a day where you're actually sitting in still and quiet and not, not thinking. You're simply observing thoughts as they arise and agreeing to abstain from following them as much as you can and coming back to your anchor point, which for usually is the breath, although there are other anchor points, but that's a kind of a sidetracked. Mm -hmm. What you're doing during that time is you're practicing creating that space that Viktor Frankl was talking about. So that we're not as compelled, we start to see we have a little bit of choice around that reactivity. And it's very different, as I said a few moments ago, from saying I really shouldn't do that. But what happens is you see yourself, you start to see your thought patterns and you start to see wow, I can see that I'm really judging myself and I can see there's a lot of judgment there and that um, there's some admonishment there and I can see some really old patterns of struggling with should and shouldn't. All those things become more apparent on an experiential level. Mm. So by practicing how to be with, how to practice pausing before reacting and how to practice opening that space gives you some muscle for being able to apply it in the rest of your life, which is what we're after here anyway. Mm -hmm. And then the other part of that is, and this is huge, and I think that there's something that everybody can come away from our conversation with, is that you can always begin again. You can always start 
again. Mm. And that was big for me in getting navigating my longstanding relation, mal relationship, bad relationship with food eating and my body. It doesn't mean that even if your client did all these things and he did his practice and he was aware of this, he might just go ahead and plunder through and eat the cake or whatever anyway. Mm. And mm. that happens. But if we can adopt space around it that says you can always begin again, you can do that in the next second. And that's a big relief. That's a big relief. And you know what? It doesn't just apply to food and exercise. It applies to relationships. Like I'll know sometimes, um, yes, even I lose my patience and snap at my husband and it's not always fair. <laughs> and you know that feeling. It's just like, oh, God, why did I say that? And you try to figure out how to unravel for it or justify yourself for doing it. And sometimes I'll just say, you know, I can start again. And you can just change your entire demeanor mm. and attitude and proceed with love and kindness and compassion. And it just changes everything. So this is across the spectrum for mm -hmm. change. But so it's, that's so interesting because like when I, um, you know, before I became enlightened, when I used to snap at my family members for no reason, like 15 minutes ago or so, um, I find that I, there's a part of me going, hey, you can start again. And there's another part of me going like you, like you bought into this, right? Like don't back, like, you know, like, like self-justification and, and like, I don't, I'd lose face by being kind now, you know, cause I, <laughs> and I think yeah, that here's the, thing. here's the thing, Howard, that's where the, pra you practice starting again in meditation, in meditation. Mm -hmm. That's where you hone that skill. You can sit down and your ideas, your body is still, your mind be still. And the, of course the trains come by trains of thoughts and you're off on sometimes 500 of them before five minutes is up. But what you do is the minute you notice you got on the train, you let go and start again. So you're actually practicing starting again. Mm. So, in fact, the worse you're meditating, the more opportunities you have yep. for starting Better again. training. Exactly. That's what I like yeah. to say. <laughs> All right. So I have I have a Karate Kid question for you about that. You know how in the original Karate Kid, there's like wax on, wax off, paint the fence, yeah. you know, all that. He didn't realize that that was a transferable skill until much later. Like, how do you help people? Because I know people who are meditators. And yet when it comes to food, it's like it's completely non-transferable. They're two completely separate domains. and They don't have anything to do with each other. How do you help people connect what they the muscle they've built in meditation into regular life. Yeah. Well, that brings up the question about what is a meditation? Because I actually started meditating in 19, I don't know, 73, 72 or 73. And it wasn't mindfulness meditation. It was like a mantra based meditation. And I did that for a few years. I traveled to India a few times to study intensively. But I, after a while, I just couldn't see the transfer to my life. Hmm. It, it did not change how I went about meeting my emotional life, my relationship life, my job life. It was like separate from. Mm -hmm. So I think that this is where mindfulness, it, it invited me into something that was very practical because I could apply everything to um, life. 
So that would be my first question. You know, when you say someone's a meditator, and I think any kind of meditation that helps you de-stress and relax and all those are good. There's hundreds, probably thousands of kind of meditation out there. But the reason I'm an advocate for mindfulness is because of the doors it opened up for me for this kind of thing, like starting again, creating the space <laughs> and all that. So I think it comes down to what kind of tool is being used. I think there's a misunderstanding. This opens up an important door. There's a misunderstanding around meditation that you're going to achieve a sense of happiness and bliss that is going to make all these other problems easy to manage. And I don't think it's that at all. The goal is not to be blissed out or to be um, mellow all the time because that's not realistic. The goal is to be able to be present with whatever what is, be curious about it, and use some tools for navigating it successfully. Got it. Um, so did you want to talk about the second part, the cultivating brain states? The kindness, love, and oh. patience? Oh, well, yeah, sure. That's that's good. I'm glad you brought that back in. Because, um, and this is all really written up in depth in the Mindful Vegan. I know that we have a short period of time here for talking about this. But we do know from the research that much of the time, we are at least 50% of the time, we're in wandering mind. That in that's called the default mode network in humans, and that's been tested through fMRI. And we just know when we're not engaged with a task or focused on it, that we tend to be self-reflective and uh, be protecting ourselves and thinking ahead or wandering and thinking about the past. And it's not like that. This is actually a positive evolutionary development. Because if we didn't have wandering mind, we wouldn't know how to look out for dangers, wouldn't be aware of when's foods apparent or you know it's not like we always have these boxes of food in our kitchens right it's like this this um, story who, who i am who am i and what do i need and so at any any time anything in the environment checks one of those boxes to re to reference ourselves our ego and something that that we could use right it's a very it's a very practical thing that's exactly very well said and thanks for being so concise there and yet we don't consciously think that. We just do it. We start, what, what's in this for me? And how can I get of what I, out of what I don't want? And how can I make this all better? So those are all useful skills. But the problem is it's kind of um, run amok a little bit. And here's an example. We know that if you allow, we've all experienced this. If your mind starts wandering and you start to think maybe about something com coming up in the future, you start catastrophizing. Have you ever done that? Like imagining the worst. Okay, that may be a wise thing, but we then turn into this playing it over and over and over again. And that's called excessive rumination. And this actually, that's a neurological term. It actually moves you into a part of your brain where also reside cravings, anxiety, depression, obsessions, um, addictions. So you've kind of stepped through the door by not having either awareness that you're in that room or you haven't checked it at all. And we all know that feeling, right? Like, I wish I could stop thinking about and you just wonder why you keep looking at your phone to navigate social media or go turn on the TV or something to just get out of this. You know what I'm talking about? That bad Feeling. Yeah, yeah, and I also I also know the strength of the medicine that I take to get out of it, you know, is is quite high. It's you know four sleeves of Oreos, or 
you know, an entire season of Stranger Things. Right. So here's well, that second part of mindfulness was cultivation of positive brain states. Mm. So when you are doing, let's say, for you're doing formal mindfulness practice. So remember, there's also two parts of mindfulness practice. There's informal, where you go about your day seeking to be as present as possible with like beautiful flowers, <laughs> with whatever's in front of you. I just saw that and I thought I'd pull it in. I love sunflowers. I always pick those up at Trader Joe's when I go because, you know, oh. they last for weeks and they're very bright. <laughs> so when you are taking the time to, oh, informal practice is being present. Like I'm having this conversation with you. So right now, if my mind starts thinking, what am I going to make for dinner? When am I going to go out and, and mind the garden? Those things are all going to come up, right? I consciously from my practice now let those go so I can be here talking with Howard right now. So that's the informal practice and formal practice is the time you spend quietly sitting down, standing up, whatever, whatever form of meditation you do, reminding yourself to come back to your anchor point and letting wandering mind go. This starts to show us how much we're caught up in this, um, default mode network of wandering mind. And the research shows us that we're, since we're spending 50% of our time doing that, that if we allow ourselves to go into that unchecked, then it can derail into those other negative states that I was talking about. But if instead you take the time and intention to let go of thinking and move out of the default mode network, into actually uh, attention, attentive awareness, which is mindfulness practice, you are moving into another part of your brain where exists compassion and kindness and love and just they're there. They're just all covered up. Mm. So again, I don't want to equate this that you sit down and meditate and you get blissed out so nothing else bothers you. That's not the idea. The idea is that you learn that endogenous to you are these other states that can be cultivated, but it depends on some sort of balance instead of us just letting our minds wander wherever they want to go all day long, then expecting when we're tired and we're hungry that we're not going to have a better sense of uh, space around making a choice. Mm -hmm. So let me let me ask you this, because I've uh, I've done various things to override habitual patterns. And usually the like, for example, I studied Alexander technique, which is a sort of sort of posture yeah. and movement. And yeah. I would do these exercises 10, 15 minutes a day. But the rest of my, the, my waking time, I was doing the opposite. Like I wasn't it felt like being aware 24 seven would have would have killed me like to be. Oh, am I am I standing with my spine erect, my neck like this and, you know, the feet in this position, like all the things that I would practice. I, I was always wondering, like, am I undoing that for a lot more of the time that I'm doing it? So if I start a, medit a mindfulness meditation practice and then the rest of my day is still caught up in default mode network and, and catastrophizing and all that, like, is there a balance? Is there a time or a way to to bring the benefits of the meditative practice, the formal practice into my life so that it starts to balance more? This is the value of having regular formal practice and also doing regular application to daily activities. For example, and here's a good bridge. 
You can choose to get started for this transfer. Choose a couple things you do during the day that you usually don't necessarily feel like you have to be present for, like brushing your teeth or washing the dishes or walking to the mailbox and back or making the bed. And set the intention that for those five minutes of time or 10 minutes of time, that you're going to keep turning your attention to doing what you're doing while you're doing it. That's what it is. Do what you do while you're doing it instead of, and we know, I'm back, back to the research. There is, and, and if anyone's curious, you can look up Wandering Mind on Happy Mind. And it was a study out of Yale, where they actually found through thousands, millions of replies actually, that people who were attentive with what they were doing were actually happier than if, even if they were doing something they didn't want to do, mm. than if they were letting their minds wander to something they thought was more pleasant. For example, fantasizing about the beach in Hawaii when you're washing the dishes, you're actually happier if you're just there watching the dishes. Uh. So that's interesting. So that's what you do. You can start seeing, experiment with it. How can I bring this practice of being present and attentive to my body sitting here? It feels like this on the chair or the cushion. And I am aware of the fullness of my breath, if it's a short breath or a long breath. So you apply to, and I want to brush my teeth. Can I just feel my feet on the floor? Can I feel the, you know, if we have an electric toothbrush, I feel the vibration in my hand. Can I feel it on my teeth? And every time your mind wanders off to one thing or another, you don't say, oh, don't do that. You say, return, bring it back. Mm. Remind, mm. let's, we're just, we're brushing our teeth right now. That's all we're doing. You know what, what I love about that is, so, you know, one of the, the difficulties of, of our attention management in modern life is multitasking and the opportunities for multitasking, right? Like, oh, here's a phone right in front of me. It just flashed that in five minutes I have my next appointment. So my mind goes there and now I'm not on you. And like, I have to admit, I have been brushing my teeth and multitasking. When I brush my teeth, I close my eyes and I have an electric toothbrush that pulses every 30 seconds. And I stand on one foot with my eyes closed and I try to work on my balance and my ankles. And like, arguably, that's fine. And when you, you do every time you brush your teeth, maybe pick um, evening toothbrushing to do a mindful toothbrushing. Mm -hmm. But it what I love about mindful about applying mindfulness is that it is you're multitasking in that you're doing something else while brushing your teeth and you're not multitasking. You're you're actually bringing your awareness and attention to the thing you're doing. It's kind of the opposite of multitasking, and yet it serves two purposes. It's like really efficient. Yeah. Um, so when you tell people to um, do mindfulness meditation, is, is, the, is the basic instruction as simple as sit on a cushion or chair and just be aware of the fullness of your breath? Well, there's actually, let's give the four steps for setting it up because that's really helpful to people. Do we have time for that? We'll make it really quick. Let's make it really quick. I want to be off in three minutes. To, so I have okay. one minute to get mindful for my okay. coaching client. And I, I've been doing this for years, but I still go through this four step process and it takes seconds. I think mm -hmm. position and feel my body in wherever it is I'm sitting and I'm upright and open hearted and I'm my receptive. Am I relaxed at ease yet at attention? It's not a military exercise. That's P. Then A stands for anchor. Where's your anchor point? Where are you returning your attention to every time it wanders? So that can be the feeling of the breath coming in your body. I is intention. How long and with what attitude do I intend to do this? 
Am I going to do this for five minutes with kindness, patience, and an open heart, or I'm going to am I going to steal through half an hour and keep watching the clock? You know, what's what's my attitude? And R is remindfulness. Every time you remember what your intention was to do, you return your attention and repeat it over and over. So that's a good way to just set it up quick and easy. Beautiful. Thanks. Okay. I'll, I will share those. And for folks who want to learn more from you, where should they go? Well, my website has lots of resources. It even has full 30 days of audios for meditation that go with the Mindful Vegan. I just put those up on my blog about three or four weeks ago. They're a companion to the book, but I want everyone to have access mm -hmm. to them. So LandyMuleRouth.com is Sp the best place. You can put that on yourself. I will, but for people who are only going to listen, can you spell it and say it slowly? L-A-N-I-M as in Mary, U-E-L-R-A-T-H as in hat. And I think the MindfulVeganBook.com gets you there too, or the PlantBasedJourney.com, all those places. Okay, great. So you need to be mindful of all your, uh, your websites too. Or you know what? They can look you up on Amazon, and because you're listed as uh, since you wrote that beautiful, I know to the plant-based journey. It's there. They can follow a trail from that. I know. Sometimes, sometimes lazy podcasters just look for my bio and they look on Amazon and they they say that I wrote the plant-based journey. So I have that's the first thing I have to do in conversations is correct them. Well, you did write a beautiful part of it, so thank you. Well, thank you. Lanny, thank you so much. This is this is not where I thought we were going to go, but it's so useful. I'm glad we got to this one specific thing. And I have a coaching client in two minutes. I think I'm going to take this and apply it with them. Okay. So Thank you, Howard. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye. I hope you found that helpful. So if you'd like to become a health coach, or maybe you already are a health coach and you'd like some additional training and more skills, or perhaps you're a health professional, a doctor, nurse, dietitian, etc., who would like to be able to influence your patients more effectively, again, check it out, wellstartcoach.com. All right, have a great day.